Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Week 9 Writing for Children, Making It Up As I Go Along podcast. Uh, it's lovely to be talking to you, and I'm really sorry that we can't be doing this in person, but there we go. What I hope that you can do is get the slides for this week off Moodle. Um, I'll put the latest version up there once I recorded this session. So if you if you did download them a while ago, it's worth re-downloading the latest ones. And I, I'm sitting in front of my computer and I will just go through the slides and uh, and talk through what I had in mind when I was making them. And obviously you've got the handout available too. So um, I, I hope you're sitting comfortably and now we'll begin. Um, I'm going to talk mostly this week about editing, but I am also going to add a little bit at the beginning about research. And um, before even that, I'm going to do a little bit of a recap on um, what we did last week, which now feels like an eon ago, which is voice. In the background, you may every now and again hear a ping, which is my computer getting an email. And to be honest, I don't know how to turn that sound off. Sorry about that. Um, they are also, as I may have mentioned, building a house behind my shed where I'm recording this now. So you'll hear lots of bumping and thumping and grumbling of bulldozers and things. And uh, I think the house is coming along very well. So um, you'll get to be a part of that. But hopefully it won't interrupt your concentration too much. Voice. I talked about how voice is the most important thing that editors and publishers look for when they're looking at new work. It's the one thing that they can't do for you. They can help you with character. They can help you with plot. But um, the voice really has to be there. And it won't come instantly to you, probably. I mean, you might be very lucky. It might. But it needs to be really fully in place before you submit your work. And OK, so what is voice exactly? It, it's hard to pin down precisely. It's very connected with point of view. Voice is a result of several decisions that you'll be making as you go along. And the main one is probably going to be from whose point of view or points of view are you going to tell the story? So are you doing it in first person, second person, third person? Uh, are you doing it from an authorial distance or from inside one character's head or two characters' head or many characters' heads? And all of this is connected with point of view. And those are some of the big decisions that you'll be taking and they will cl clearly feed into voice. So if you're doing it from inside the head of one of your characters in present tense, for example, the voice of the book will be very much the voice of that character. If you're doing it with a very distant authorial voice that's more in the line along the lines of Charles Dickens or Roald Dahl, then um, the voice will actually be the voice of a narrator who is quite separate from the characters and might be commenting on what the characters are doing in quite an ironic way, but it's also quite separate from you. Um, it could be more formal than you naturally are or less formal than you naturally are, have a better sense of humour than you naturally do. Um, so all sorts of other things come into play and it's a mixture of wit, enthusiasm, vocabulary, syntax and this thing I call idiolect, which is the combination of all the, uh, the choices you make about the register that you are uh, going to be using and any regional um, vocabulary that you, you might employ or perhaps from another country or another culture that you're going to bring in, all of that comes together uh, to create something that's really unique to you. Um, over time, I find that uh, it's very rare that the perfect voice comes to me at the same time as the per perfect idea. And often I'm playing with an idea for months 
before I really settle on all those little choices about how I want to tell the story. And with my Queen books that I'm writing now, it was it was at least 18 months before I I really found it. I hope that when you would, would read that book next year, it would look as if that was the only way I could ever tell that story. And it was always like that. But it's, it wasn't. Um, I, and there were all sorts of false starts, which look a bit similar um, to what I ended up with, but are not the same. And... Um, uh, it's a combination of me sort of drifting in and out of the Queen's head and the warmth that I've tried to bring to the story um, and a lot of um, English literary references, I guess, that people may or may not get. But um, it's a very autobiographical voice that I'm using for that book, different from voices that I've used in my children's books. So yeah, it doesn't have to come straight away, but it does have to be fully there by the time you submit. And the slide says Terry Wogan at the end. And if you remember, um, I was talking about Terry Wogan when he was a much respected Radio 2 DJ with 3 million daily listeners. And he was asked, you know, how, how do you make these people want to listen to your shows all the time? And he said, well, I'm not talking to 3 million people. I'm talking to one person in their kitchen. And that person is listening to me. And we have a long-standing relationship. And uh, it's a very intimate um, discussion that I'm having with that person, conversation. Um, and that feeling of having the book put its arm around your shoulder as a reader and go, trust me, we're going to have a great time together. You don't know what I'm going to tell you about yet. But just the fact of listening to my voice is going to make you really want to be a part of this story. That is ultimately what you're looking for. It could be poetic. It could be incredibly simplistic. If you read picture books, you'll you'll see that straight away. Um, it's a choice, but it should be a choice that is really um, comes across really clearly to your readers. Okay, there we go. That was last week. Um, now, research. Um, I used to do a whole week's class on this, but I found that um, it's it's very important for people who are writing fantasy very often on history. Um, and you guys aren't really doing that um, on the whole. So I'll, I'll go through this quite lightly. But you'll probably find yourself doing um, a certain amount of research for whatever kind of book you write. And again, that can well include picture books. You know, if you're writing about a certain kind of animal, you might want to know all sorts of things about their, um, their habitat and habits that you don't know to start with. Um, so where do I look for um, the, the information that I need? Well, I mean, I must say research terrifies me before I start any book because I'm just thinking, you know, I'm a very sort of academic thinker and I think, oh my God, I'm never going to get this perfectly right. And I'm probably not going to get it perfectly right, but I'll, I'll do it well enough. So the idea of doing it, sorry, that's a bulldozer in the background. The idea of doing it terrifies me, but I, then there's just nothing that I love more. Researching is pretty much one of my most favourite parts. Um, I have researched via YouTube. So when I was writing Beads, which was the second of the um, Threads books, I was talking about um, a scene set in the Taj Mahal and I hadn't been there. Um, but I found people's YouTube videos of their visits there hugely helpful because you get sound and, and vision um, in a way that you don't with just reading reports. You can, things that people don't tell you about is the bird song, for example. They take that for granted, or, or the calls of people who are selling um, brochures to get there. Um, they don't tell you about the pile of shoes um, outside for people who um, want to sort of observe religious practices. Um, 
And so I got a lot of information from from looking at videos. Um, the look, I was writing about a girl with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and I needed a lot of uh, correct, uh, up-to-date um information about how that is treated in teenagers and the way of these things is you're always two steps away I found just always from somebody who is an expert on the thing you need to know it just astonishes me if you ask around enough you'll find a friend of yours has a cousin or a friend who who does this thing um and I, a friend of a friend, turned out to be a paediatric oncologist who was absolutely treating patients with um, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And I was able to ask a series of questions by email. What I would say with if you are talking to someone by email is, as you know, receiving a very, very long email from somebody you don't know is, is quite stressful and off-putting and you just kind of don't want to answer it. So try and keep your certainly your initial emails asking if it's okay if you contact them fairly short and to the point about you know, the fact that you're writing this book and you need this information you'd appreciate it um then when you do ask make sure that your questions are fairly specific so they don't have to think too hard about what you're asking so they can give you a clear answer my experience is once they get going they actually tell you far more than you've asked for because it's really lovely to share what they're an expert in with somebody who's really interested so you generally get a lot of information out of them but it's easier for them to imagine you know the task of sharing it if you're not asking for too much to start with so keep your your questions fairly short not too many of them relatively specific um, and that means you have to do quite a lot of work yourself to um, be able to do that um, I think it's fairly unacceptable to take up an expert's time going oh go on just tell me generally about your job no your job before you ask them is to do that piece of work um, find out as much as you can and then you can ask really specific things that you can't find out any other way um, following Ophelia um, that was set in Victorian London I found maps incredibly useful then um, Often I could find them online, but I used to pause outside at map shops and look and see if they had a map in the window of roughly the right date, which they often did. And that was the way I learnt, for example, that, you know, various London bridges that I had taken for granted weren't in existence uh, in the 1850s when I was writing or had only just been built, were in the process of being built, Chelsea Bridge being one of those. So, you know, things that I'd taken for granted, um, I realised I I couldn't. Um, that's very handy. Um, I then did a, a workshop with Scooby and was asking for their ideas for historical um, research. And all sorts of people came up with really good ones. Reenactment societies, for example. There's so much they know. Um, and they're quite easy to contact and they're very keen to share it. Um, private libraries. Um, if you're writing based in a particular location, that, that town may have a, a museum, probably does, or a society, a historical society, which might only be a few people, but you know, they will be experts and desperate to share what they know. And, and they'd much rather you get it right than get it wrong. Um, and academics, you really can um, find out, you know, who, who a professor um, is at a university and, and approach them um, on the off chance that they will help you. And, and very often they will. So the tools of the trade are out there. Um, and then the question is, well, how much to do? Uh, and it's possible to do too much and it's possible to do not enough. Um, I think Lucy Coates writes a really, really good post on how research, you know, truth is stranger than fiction and research can give you a, a richness and depth to the world that you're trying to create that your own imaginations can't do. So there's a link on the slide 
to um, her History Girls blog post called On the Trail of Cleopatra. Uh, and that's a great one to read. Um, at the opposite end of the scale, there's Lee Child and um, the book Reacher Said Nothing by Andy Martin um, follows him writing his 20th book over the period of a year. And in it, he claims to do almost no research before he starts. Um, it's a combination of things. He, he likes to be driven by story, which clearly works because he's such a bestseller. And also he finds that readers connect with what how they imagine something is more than how it actually is. So he said he'd rather describe from his own imagination how, how firing a gun feels rather than actually go to a range and fire one because that's just all too analytical. Um, I, I'm not sure how far that's true but I do think it can be very good to um, write write the story first or you know as you're writing it then realize what you need to know and then go off and research that. Um, Tanya Landman who's a fantastic um, historical and fantasy writer for young adults talks about the iceberg that you know your research is the iceberg but only the tip of it should appear. Uh, in your work and definitely if, you know if you are one of those people who loves doing a lot of research then make sure that only what you really really need for your characters and your plot and your setting is what makes it through um, I do think that's really important. Um, if you listen to my conversation uh, on the podcast with Sarah Collins, she talks a lot about that and she talks about it very eloquently. Um, you may find that in your early drafts, you know, they're absolutely pinging with your research because it's all so interesting. And a lot of that you might need to pare away um, so that the story shines through uh, as you do later drafts. So bear that in mind. Um, and in terms of when to do it, well, um, I've got an image on the slide of some children in a dinghy and that is taken from Cressida Cal talking about how to train your dragon. And she went to a Scottish island owned by her father um, in uh, when she was little and she based a lot of the, the Hiccup books, How to Train Your Dragon books on that island um, and on, on the spe specific rock faces and things of the island. So that is uh, an interesting way of, you know, using childhood experiences to feed into your literature. And uh, gosh, goodness knows, in all my, my thread series and, and the look and others, um, I, with Love Song it was music, with Threads it was fashion. I, a lot of the things I, I was interested in as a teenager just poured into the books. Um, then there's the basic research that you need to do before you start potentially to make sure you've got the story right and you might want to talk to one or two experts in the field if, if it's that sort of thing just to make sure you don't miss out on any interesting stories that you could incorporate into your plotting um and and then i find that a little bit of light research as i go through is good very good piece of advice is don't allow yourself and gosh this is you know I do this but don't allow yourself to spend too much time during a writing day on the internet researching so the the more disciplined thing to do is make a note to yourself of research that needs to be done leave a gap or write something that will just be a space filler um, and then do the research in a separate block of time when you when um, you can research several things in one go, and that stops your brain from having to flip in and out of writing mode. Um, I don't do this as much as I should, but it is a way of becoming much more efficient in your writing. Uh, next. Searching different genres. Um, I've talked about how to train your dragon and the fact that real life, if you're writing fantasy, you can bring in a huge amount of real life 
to that. Um, Tolkien based a lot of um, Lord of the Rings on his reading of Norse legends, which he was um, you know, had an academic interest in, um, and in certain landscapes that he was very familiar with. Um, so actually, once you know where he got his uh, his information from. Um, he didn't have to use his own imagination as much as you might think. He, he was quoting a lot of stuff that that, um, that he was familiar with from other places and people. Um, Tanya Landman um, has written Buffalo Soldier, set in the just after the American Civil War. She talks about very um, about her process for writing historical fiction um, in a post she did for the Guardian. So have a look at that. But she does say you're writing fiction, not a textbook. Um, and this is what when I was talking about the iceberg, um, that's important. Um, you don't have to be super accurate, but it's useful to know when you're deliberately um, not following what you know to be true and when you are. Um, but I also love what she says about being biased. Um, history is written by one side in a conflict generally, and you are absolutely allowed to take the voice of the other side. Um, and then the last thing um, I would say is if you are writing about um, the other. So diversity in any way, um, as a character or an aspect of your plot, or something that, that is not part of your, your own culture and your own world, your own experience, uh, uh, your, your gendered experience, whatever it is, please um, be aware and do the research. With all the other research, it's kind of as much as you feel like. But, but now in this day and age, when it comes to writing the other, um, we just know too much about how people can be misrepresented and rightly offended by um, somebody assuming that they know what they're talking about when they don't. So if you're writing about disability, for example, um, if you're writing about any, any um, group in society who are disempowered in some way um, or who are not part of the mainstream, um, make sure that you um, get people from that group ideally to read and more than one person because everybody's got their own individual reactions to get them to read your work and point out if you've made any basic mistakes um, and this is absolutely what I'm trying to do with my current book um, so yeah absolutely feel free to write whoever and whatever you like but make sure that you don't inadvertently misrepresent somebody who actually could do with having their own voice heard um, yeah so that's the next slide really writing the other I talked about that um, oh, got a coffee cup here. We would have had a break. <laughs> um, so you're very welcome to go make yourself a cup of tea or coffee or whatever it is right now um, and come back to this, but I shall move swiftly on. Uh, we're not doing a workshop. That's very sad. Um, but you can always do them with each other still. Um, don't forget, uh, it's, it's possible to email uh, work around and for people to write their comments and track changes, whatever that might be. Um, so feel free to use the technology to to keep the writing group going. Okay, um, so that's 15 minutes gone already and um, the rest I will um, devote to the art of editing. Um, so um, various things that I'm going to be talking about. The main one is the dirty draft. Um, as you know, I go on and on about this. I think it's so important um, getting things done, getting things finished. You can't work on something until you have something to work on. Um, and I now think of the dirty draft as being like amassing a whole bunch of clay 
um, of wet clay onto a table so that you can then start to make your sculpture. But you can't do that until the, the raw material is there for you to work on. Um, so while you are writing this draft of your story, you, of course you'll be trying to make make it into the perfect work of art as you go along. But it will keep sliding away from you, almost certainly, and that can be very frustrating and can ultimately lead to abandoning the work. And there are some times when that's the right thing to do, but most of the time, if you are a writer, the right thing to do is just keep on amassing that clay, keep on getting it, getting it there until you have the raw material, all of the raw material in place, beginning, middle and end. And then we move into the next section, which is writing is rewriting. I'll talk you through all of that. Um, and I'll also talk you through being your own editor, um, how the traditional publishing process works and how you can adapt that for what you're going to do. So, the dirty draft. John Green um, is a hugely successful young adult writer. Um, and he very much supports NaNoWriMo, um, the National Novel Writing Month, which falls in November, um, which is when you try and write a 50,000 word novel in a month just by getting the words on a page. And he says, I'm increasingly convinced that while no great book can be written in a month, no great book can be written in a first draft, no matter how long it takes you to write it. If you want to think about it like sculpture, writing a first draft is like digging the clay out of the ground and revision is when you actually use the clay to like build something that you like. So similar thing. Um, and what NaNoWriMo does for writers young and old is it gives us permission to suck. So the dirty draft is giving yourself permission to suck. Write a bad thing so you have a thing and then you can turn it into a good thing. Here we go. So Threads version 34. Um, I wrote the beginning, when I was trying to find my voice in Threads, I wrote 17 versions before I was happy. Now, it doesn't mean I wrote it from start to finish 17 times. It means I wrote the first three or four or five or six chapters um, 17 times, not starting from scratch each time. Sometimes I did, sometimes I didn't. But each time I was changing so much that it would be very difficult to undo those changes, I saved it as a new version. And I was on version 17 before I was happy with the opening chapters. Um, I then wrote the book and um, revised it a few times before sending it off to the chicken house competition. And having sent it off, I then kept on revising it and tweaking at it and getting it better and better. Um, and so by the time I heard that I'd won the competition, which was almost a year after I'd started writing a book, um, I was on version 34. And version 34 was so tight that it required a very light edit um, when it was actually published. Um, but the thing is, if you if you manage to get it to a really, really good stage, it makes it so much easier for editors to picture what they would do to it. You've made so many of the difficult decisions for them. So um, getting that work done is great. But there's a huge difference, and this is what I've learned over all the years as a teacher. There's a huge difference between doing the 34, getting the 34th draft of a finished thing and making it better, and beyond, being on version 34 of something that's still only 10 chapters long and needs to be 40 chapters long. So yeah, I mean, I did spend a long time on the early chapters of Threads, but then I then I found my voice and then I very rapidly moved on and it was a matter of weeks from that point to when I finished it. Um, but really the the work of tweaking, of um, of looking at your, your style and your plot points and how your structure's panning out and your pacing and all of those things, they should be done on something that is already finished, ideally. 
otherwise you'll never get there. Okay, so what do these versions look like? They look like this. If you're onto the next slide, this is um, an example from the castle, I believe. Um, and now paper is expensive. It's not great for the environment to produce so much of it. So I usually work online, but every now and again, I think you really have to work on paper. We, we read differently on paper, as you may well have noticed in the workshops. We notice things better. We, I think we, we work slower, to be honest, and that's not a bad thing. So at various stages in the process, and other writers do it at more, more stages in the process than me, I do print out and I edit by hand. And um, whether I'm doing it just on screen or by hand, this is when I'm talking about new versions, this is the level of editing that I'm talking about. Both tiny weeny words and paragraphs and moving things around and a lot of rewriting goes on. So that hopefully by the time I'm finished, every word will look like it's in its natural place and no rewriting had to be done at all because everything is just so obviously where it should be. Um, and that comes from doing it again and again and again until the thing that started off in the wrong place ends up in the right place or taken out completely because it didn't belong. Okay, so learning from the publishing industry, which I'll show you a bit later, um, this is all about being your own editor. So you start off by giving yourself permission to suck. And I can't reiterate this enough. I mean, you're all great writers that those of you who have shared um, in the course. Um, so you're not going to suck that much, to be honest. Um, but you you write through writer's block. Ideally, um, you just you just keep going, you get the word count up, and uh, you get that first draft done. And then you put it in a drawer for at least a month. There's something about a month. I just I don't know what it is. But you're if you're in the lucky position, which you are, of not having an editor drumming their fingers waiting for it, then that that's a luxury that you know. Hopefully, if you become a published writer, you won't have again. Um, so make the most of that luxury and don't work on it for a month. Work on other ideas, absolutely, but not that one. Come back to it when you can look at it with a fresh, critical eye. If you come on it, come back to it too soon, it'll still have things in it that you know aren't quite right, but you just love them too much to get rid of them or change them. After a month, you'll find that you can be a little bit more brutal with your work. Now, what you're gonna do is read it and not change it. Um, read for structure fast. The temptation by the time you get to the second sentence is to tweak, do not do this. If you do, you will end up rewriting as you go and encountering almost all the same problems that you had the first time around. And, and you'll find yourself after a little while just wading around in issues and not being sure whether you're coming or going. So you're going to avoid that. You are going to read for structure. And that means reading almost at the pace of a reader. So this is only going to take you hours to do. I mean, you might have to put the hours in over a period of several days, but it will only be hours. And what you're going to do is just make notes whenever you notice that um, it's too slow, it's too fast, it's in the wrong, the voice is wrong in some way. Um, really big things, though, just big things. If you come across little things, I will allow you to highlight them, thinking, oh, I really need to change the way that that is put and I can think of a better way of doing it. You may highlight them, but you may not fiddle. You may not interfere. You're just making notes. You get to the end, and now I'm going to let you fiddle. You can incorporate your notes. But you're still thinking at a structural level. If you start getting into the teeny-weeny details, you'll lose sight of the structure. So you 
you get the structure right. And that might mean some massive rewriting, moving things around, losing a character, losing two chapters, who knows. You read for structure, you get that done. When you're happy, now I'm going to let you read for language and detail. And now you're going to read slow. So the structure's right. You've spent a lot of time on the structure. You're comfortable with the structure. As you get from chapter to chapter, you you know you're in the right place. And now what's, what's annoying you is your use of certain words, your use of certain phrases, um, whether you've got the punctuation right, um, how a character speaks, maybe the research you want to just do in a little bit more detail, you want to get the setting better. All of those things you can start to do now. And, and then you can do this over and over again, getting it getting it better. But those so those are the, the, the three big stages. Permission to suck, reconstruct fast, make comments, read for language and detail, slow, changing as you go. Okay. Um, and the stages are, um, so these are all early rewrites and, and structural edits. Um, the reading for language is more like a line edit. Um, and then there's a copy edit, but by now you are looking for um, consistency. So you might find that there's a fantastic word that you love. I always find there's one word in each book. It varies. And you find that you've used it kind of 12 times when you didn't mean to. So you pick up things like that. Um, and you can do a copy edit and a proof pretty much at the same time. You're looking for typos. You're looking for the obvious things. I'll, I'll show you what some of those can be in a minute. Um, these are the stages that a book goes through. Uh, and, and editors are very rigorous about this. So during a structural edit, an editor will not tell me what, what picky things they're going to have to tell me in a line edit. And each time that I've done this 10 times, each time I will think, oh, great, they don't have any problems with my, my style or my, my language. It's, it's all just structural. But no, they're just holding back and waiting till I'm ready. So we just do structural then we just do language. There might be a little bit of structural if, if, they're, if they're changing their minds about something, hopefully not. And then we just do these, these picky things towards the end. And in fact, that is a separate editor in the professional publishing world, the copy editor. They're brought in to impose house style. And by that stage, you say goodbye to your um, the editor that you've really worked with on, on getting the book to its, um, to the, to sort of towards the final stages. Um, and you're handed over to this person who's just there to get these language details right. Um, talking about language and detail, um, I'm on the next slide now, and it's something I've taken from Maggie Stiefvetter's um, website, which I think is fantastic. I hope it's still there. Um, it's called From from Rough to Final, A Dissection of Revision. And um, it shows you her thoughts on two versions of chapter 15 of one of her books, which I think is The Raven... Oh, can't think the Raven something. Um, she's such a fabulous YA writer and she's so generous in explaining what she was thinking when she was writing and what she was thinking when she was editing. So these are all notes which are explained um, in detail in her blog post. And I really recommend you see how somebody who's, whose initial writing is excellent um, then takes it to the next stage to make it even better and the kind of little decisions that she's making. I have to say, I don't always agree with her. She might change a, you know, a four-line, a four-word paragraph into um, a sort of, you know, roll it into another paragraph. When I'm thinking, actually, I really liked its punchiness the way it was. So I don't always agree with her, but it's fascinating to see her process. Okay, the next thing I have for you is um, the editing exercise, which we normally we would be doing in pairs or threes, um, but you can do by yourself if you want to. So um, 
this is an extreme version, but it's a good chance to practice your editing. So this is this is a piece of work that a writer has submitted to you and you're the editor now. Um, now I have to say, a professional editor on pain of their life should not rewrite the words of a writer. What they should be doing is constantly commenting, making suggestions on um, how something should be rewritten. And they should really only be actively changing something if it's a wrong spelling or something that is uncontroversial. So um, in this one, you, you are an editor who has, for various reasons, been allowed to, to do a rewrite of, of something that's badly written. So I want you to have a look at this piece of work um, uh, and then see how you can make it better. Um, and have fun with it. Okay, next one. Oh, we've reached another break. You can have another cup of tea. Ah, uh, this is um, <laughs> the, the David Bowie and One Direction um, slide. is me writing Love Song. Um, and the fact that I wrote the whole thing through writer's block. Um, and I discovered all sorts of things. One is that you really can write a whole book through writer's block. Uh, one is that you need friends to help you through because when I was really losing faith in what I was writing, um, my friends gave me the confidence to carry on because they said it was much better than I thought. And that is the thing. Writer's block is really about a lack of confidence in your writing, I find. is often much better than you think it is. So if you keep reading through, keep keep writing through, keep writing that, that dirty draft, when you look back on it, you probably surprise yourself with the quality of it um, and the fact that it's all right. Um, there's a slide here on um, how the professional editor process usually works, uh, which I kind of talked through to a degree anyway. All I would say is having worked with three publishing houses, um, this is this is roughly how it works, but it varies in its detail from house to house and from editor to editor even. And there is no one way of doing it. And you might well work with an editor who says, oh, this is how it always happens but um, yeah everybody's experience is slightly different but it's roughly the process that I've described on this slide. Now what I've included next is um, the story of Love Song um, is, is my own experience of, of how a professional editor um, gave her input um, and Bella Pearson is a really excellent editor. I was very, very lucky to have her. She, she now runs her own publishing company, Guppy Books, um, but she was an editor for, for many, many years. Um, and so to start off with, she gave me notes. This is normal. So in the early days, um, she what we did was the way I like to work is um, we just talk it through. I make the notes and then I implement them. So these are my notes from our conversation about how, what needs to change. Just to give you a sense of the kind of thing that she was looking at. And we would do it in this particular book um, on in various sections. So this was not the whole book. This was just the section that we happened to be working on at the time. Um, then there were further notes, which I think uh, that's all part of the same, possibly part of the same um, uh, meeting that we had. Um, and it says here, the edit after this was the line edit. So this is the last of the structural edits that we went through together. And then she talked, that then you know, we must have spoken and then she wrote this. And the reason I've included this, um, her writing, I think it's nearly there and I've so much enjoyed being back in Nina's world, is that as writers, we really need this. We are sensitive flowers and we really can't work well if we're stressed out 
by what somebody says about our work. So you know if you're working with a good editor, if they're good at, at holding you up as well as pointing out what needs to be changed. Not all editors can do this. And it can be very painful to work with an editor who has a really bad bedside manner and makes you feel bad about your writing and yourself. And that's not your fault if that's what they're doing. And if it gets to a stage where it's holding you back, it is worth very gently raising it with somebody in the publishing house um, that this is difficult for you. Um, or maybe if you feel you can, raising it with the editor first. Um, if an editor is bringing you down, let them know and hopefully give them the opportunity to be uplifting because a good editor is uplifting. And this from a separate book, my next slide, The Unveiling Venus, um, is what a line... Ah, uh, I tell you what, no, it's not exactly what a line edit is because as I say, the editor shouldn't be changing your work. They should be suggesting how to change it, which they do do in track changes. Um, the Unveiling Venus thing that I'm showing you is me making changes to my own work as a result of going through the editor's notes. So you will find it's very typical to have over a thousand um, edits like this in a line edit that you have to go through. So don't worry if that happens to you. Um, don't worry if you're doing it to yourself. So there'll be over a thousand of these and, and I'll just go through them one by one and... Um, and try and uh, improve the text based on what she said or disagree. You absolutely have to ch fight, you know, choose which battles to fight. But if an editor is talking to you about something and you, you've got a really good reason why you don't want to change it, then it's worth explaining your reason. Just don't be doing that all the time um, so that you become totally defensive. Um, so the best kind of writer to work with for an editor is a writer who really knows their own voice. They know their own style. They know the story that they want to tell. They know when they can really defend a decision. They're not just going to roll over every time somebody says to change something. But on the other hand, they're still um, open to suggestion and they respect the editor's uh, competence in seeing how to make it better. So it's a, it's a relationship of trust between the two of you. So how to do it when it's just you? Well, online, you can do it with the track changes thing like I've shown you um, there. Um, you can you can simply just, you know, as long as you version save, um, just keep going at it. But do version save a lot because you might change your mind about something. I find I often do. There might be a whole section I've taken out and then actually I want to put it back in somewhere else in a revised form. So make sure that you don't um, keep losing things. I often have um, 20 or 30 versions of something by the time I've finished. Um, but there's also on paper, as I've talked about, and drafting on paper has its own benefits. And there's out loud, and that's the next thing I'm going to get to. Um, just looking at the tools thing, so I'm going through. Yes, so out loud um, will be the next exercise I'll talk to you about. But before that, I'll just talk to you, talk you through tools. Um, so you've got track changes on Word, printouts, post-its, highlighters and colours, pens. Um, all of these can be handy when you're doing that, for example, that structural edit where I'm not letting you fiddle about with the text yet. Um, there's audio. I have one friend who gets um, uh, a free app to read the book out to her while she's driving. So she can't change anything. She just has to listen. And then that way she'll remember the things that really, really need changing. I can't bear to have my books read out to me by a flat voice. It just make the prose sound so dead to me. It just really puts me off. So it wouldn't work for me, but it works for her. Getting um, a friend to read it for you, I always do this. I always have a little focus group of people. I'm starting with my husband who um, 
who I get to see it before it goes properly to my editor. Um, a new font can be really helpful because it can trick your eye into seeing the work in a different way and so that you notice things because after you've been changing something 20 times, you know, you stop seeing mistakes that are built into it. Um, and the time thing at the bottom of this slide is all is what I was saying before, is the longer you can put something away before you go back to it, the more objective you can be when you do come back to it, the more you can appreciate what's really good about it um, and also be prepared to change what clearly does need changing. So what are you looking out for? Well, it depends what age group you're writing for, but um, this is kind of middle grade and you can adapt it up or down. So you're looking for characterization does it leap off the page plot flow does it make sense is the pacing right setting and description is there enough of it or too much dialogue have you done all the things i said have you included it it's great in children's books um, does it move the plot forward does it move the character forward does it really earn its place style and voice have you got these clear enough yet consistency just consistency of plot consistency of character other things which there might well be if you're doing a dirty draft are there things that um just simply don't add up anymore um do your timelines work for example I'm, i can easily find that um i've lost a week in the writing um and actually if i pl plot out what every character does when there's an overlap of a week and i have to rethink slightly how things work pace 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 is the reader turning the pages don't worry about this so much as you're writing your first draft. It can really hold you back. But with later drafts, yes. Is it clear what the main protagonist wants on every page? Look out for this as you're reading books and as you're watching movies. Um, and look out for your, your own reading. Do you really care what the main protagonist is thinking or feeling on each page? I find I do. And I usually do have some strong sense of where they are in their emotional journey. Um, but I find as a writer, I'm so busy with plot and all these other things that I often um, don't put that in very clearly in my first draft. And it's something I have to insert later. And I remember when I was writing my spy book, The Castle, I was thinking, oh, James Bond, you don't keep on hearing how he feels emotionally because my editor kept on saying, you know, more emotion, more emotion. And so I went back, actually, and I read one of Ian Fleming's novels and I was quite wrong. Ian Fleming is constantly putting in exactly how James Bond feels about something. Um, you know, Daniel Craig has to do it all with a slight crinkling of the eyes. But again, you can, you can sense, you know, whether he's afraid, annoyed, excited, um, falling back on the training, anticipating, whatever it is, betrayed. Um, it is all there and it is there in the writing too, even for James Bond. So it certainly should be for your children's characters. As uh, me going through the slides. Okay. I think I've covered all of this, which is the recap. Reading aloud is one of the most useful things you can do towards the very end to make sure you don't have stupid mistakes in your books. And editors who your agents you're submitting to, they really don't like stupid mistakes. Most of us who live in this world are pedants about spelling and grammar and syntax, and we can forgive a few mistakes, but we can't forgive a lot of mistakes. Now, a lot of my students are dyslexic. And I think I've said before, to the extent that I think there is a positive correlation between being dyslexic and being a really good writer. And that may mean that if you are dyslexic or something like it, that you are not the best person to be the final judge 
of things like spelling and grammar and syntax. Uh, in which case, please, please find a friend or pay somebody to do that piece of work for you and don't let let your work down uh, with things that can easily be changed. Okay, but something I find reading my own work on screen is, <laughs> well, with the Windsor Knot. Okay, so the book that's coming out next year, I submitted it. God knows I read it a million times. My husband read it. My mother read it. My father read it. Six friends read it. Um, everybody I could think of read it, sent it to my agent and... <laughs> He loved it, but he pointed out I had spelt the second word wrong in the title. So I got that right. Yay, go me. But I had spelt Windsor, W-I-N-S-D-N-O-R, I think. And I I never noticed that it was wrong. Um, reading aloud can really, really help to spot things that you wouldn't otherwise spot. So here's an exercise. It's taken, it's an adaptation of one of my pieces from The Bigger Picture. Um, I would say skim read it on screen and then print it out and then read it aloud, probably to yourself, but ideally to somebody else and see if you spot things that you didn't spot when you were just reading online. Uh, and I'll show you the kind of things to look out for. And then if you want to test yourself, the following slide shows what um I changed. Now, one of the things that um, I put in was sort of an extra long sentence, for example, because you can hear that with a reading aloud. Um, if if the solution to a problem is style rather than simply, you know, taking out repeated words or something, then you may find that you you have fixed the problem in a different way from the way I fixed it, and that's fine. That with this exercise, that always happens, not a problem. Um, the, the the useful thing is just to see the problems that are in here in the first place, and then decide how to fix them. So yeah, it may feel a frivolous thing to do, but it is one of the most useful um, things that I can suggest to you. And as your style develops, also, the more you hear it aloud, the better. Hilary McKay, who recently won, I think it was the Carnegie, um, if not the Costa, with Skylark's War, she always reads aloud her whole work to herself. have to admit, I don't do the whole thing, but I do bits. Right, there we are. How am I doing for time? Um, okay, so that's about 45 minutes. Um, so I hope that's a reasonable um, amount of time for this podcast for you. Um, sadly, won't be vo workshop volunteers, um, unlike the slide. But um, the next podcast I do will be around getting published. Um, and I'll record it once I've got your questions for Stephanie um, and possibly her answers. Um, meanwhile, I'll get Christopher to help me um, edit this one and publish it and I will send you a link so that you can listen. Um, obviously, this is a bit of an experimental way of doing things. So if you've got any feedback for me on it, then I'd love to hear it. You can also do it by voice if you'd like, however works. And I'll be in touch soon with the next one. Thank you for listening.